This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning as we continue our journey through the book of Hebrews and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We looked at verses 1 through 4 last week, and this week we'll continue by looking at verses 5 through 9. Uh, someone asked me this week if I had some special sermon for Easter. And I said, no, I feel on Easter when we have a lot of visitors, they should hear what we do week in and week out. So I'm just going to try to find something in the next part of Hebrews that may in some way relate to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm not sure that'll be possible, but if I can just find something in the Bible that maybe makes a direct line to the gospel, I think I'll be able to do that. So I am looking forward uh, to next week as we celebrate Easter together, but we're just going to keep on going as God is teaching us a lot in the book of Hebrews. There may be no person in the Old Testament who saw more miraculous works of God than Elisha. Now that's an amazing thing to say because his predecessor was Elijah. I was thinking this week, it's one of the things that made me think about this story, about Elisha's request when Elijah was being taken up to heaven. Elijah said, what do you want? And Elisha said this, I want a double portion of your blessing. I want a double portion of God's hand upon you, which Elijah had done some amazing things. He had uh, raised a widow's son to life. He had uh, called down fire from heaven. And Elisha says, I want, I want double portion. I love that. I pray all the time that God would give me a, a double portion. And Elisha got it. He saw some incredible things. One of my favorite little stories is in 2 Kings chapter 6. Syria is warring against Israel. And so the Syrian king would get alone in his chamber with just his servants, and they would make a plan for how to take down Israel. But it seemed that every single time they came up with a plan, the Israelites knew about it. So they would know the Israelites were going to be at a certain place in a certain time, and Syria would go, and they weren't there. Or they would come in a certain type of attack and Israel would be on that side and would know and would fight them off. This happened so many times that the king of Syria was convinced that someone on the inside from his army was giving insider information. There was a mole in the camp. And so he brought all his servants together and said, all right, guys, what's going on? Something's obviously happening. Every time we fight against Israel, they know that we're coming. And the servants say, king, it's not us. It's this pesky Elisha. He's a prophet in Israel. And what happens is this, is every time you make a plan, the Lord allows him to hear what you say in his chamber. And then he tells the king of Israel and they're always ready for you. It happens every time. So the king of Syria decided to take down Elisha. So one night he takes all of his horses and chariots and they go surround the whole city where Elisha was. Elisha's servant wakes up the next morning. He walks outside, probably to get the paper or something. And he looks around and the entire city is surrounded by horses and chariots. His servant goes back in and says, Elisha, I, I think we have a problem. To which Elisha says, no, it's fine. Uh, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. To which the servant then goes, one, two. 
Elisha, I, I know I appreciate you being optimistic. This is part of your job as a servant, but you don't understand. We, we're surrounded by an army. And then Elisha prays this prayer. He says, Lord, would you open the eyes of my servant so he could see what I see? And God did. And Elisha's servant's eyes were open and what he saw was something that human eye could not see. In the eyes of faith, he saw surrounding the Syrian army was another army of horses and chariots of fire that were there to protect and defend Elisha. And they did. That's, that's good. That's, you can clap on that. That's a good one. Elisha's servant learned an important lesson that day. He learned that what we see with the eyes of faith is always more important than what we see with the physical eye. What our physical eye sees only tells part of the story. The spiritual eye is a thousand times more important than the physical eye. And if all we ever do is look at every situation, every scenario, every moment of our life with the physical eye, then we will fail to see all of the incredible things that God is doing all of the time. God in his grace has given us spiritual eyes, but we just have to train ourselves to see with them. And that's really the invitation of the text today. Because as believers in Jesus Christ, our entire system of thought is based upon things that we can't see. Like everything we believe is things that we cannot see. It tells us in Hebrews eleven six that faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. I wasn't there when the world was created, but I believe in a literal six-day creation. I wasn't there when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. I never saw that moment, but I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, as a virgin, a real flesh and blood child. I wasn't there on Golgotha as Jesus was hung upon a cross and bled and died and breathed his laughs and cried out to the Father, but I believe it. I wasn't there when he was buried. I never saw the tomb. I, I wasn't there the day in which the disciples approached the tomb and there was an angel there saying, he's gone, he's risen. As he said, I wasn't there, but next week I'm gonna celebrate that truth as if it actually happened because I believe that it happened. And this is, this is not just kind of false hope or blind trusting. We believe these things because we believe God. We believe he's trustworthy. He, we just sang it, he has never failed us yet and we don't believe he's gonna fail us. And so based upon a trustworthy God, we believe that what this word says is trustworthy and we have based, you realize this, everything in our lives by things that we have not seen. Because God has given us spiritual eyes that we might see a world that is more real and more alive and more hopeful than anything you can ever see with the physical eye. And that's why the invitation of our text this morning is really found in three simple words in verse nine. In verse nine, it says this, we see him. Do you see that? It says in verse nine, but we see him. We, those who have been given by God's grace, spiritualized, not everyone has eyes to see, not everyone who has ears to hear, but those who have received the Holy Spirit now have eyes to see. We see we see with the eye of faith, we see things that the lost world cannot see. Namely, we see him, Jesus. Now that statement is both a fact and an invitation. 
It's a fact. We see him. I mean, you're here this morning because we believe that Jesus is real and we have come to, to see him. My one job every Sunday morning is to help you through the eyes of faith to, to see Jesus, to see him in a more real way than you ever have before. It's a fact. We see him and God has given us the ability to do that. But it's also an invitation. This text is inviting us to come and, and to see more of him, to behold him, to gaze upon the beauty and the glory of the Lord which is the constant invitation of Hebrews. We saw last week in chapter two, verse one, that you must pay much closer attention, which means look to Jesus. Hebrews 3, one says, consider Jesus, which means give him your primary thought. Hebrews 12 says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Everything in the book of Hebrews is calling us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And this text is inviting us to see Jesus in two distinct ways. We are invited to see Jesus with a crown and to see Jesus with a cross. This text invites us to look back and to behold what Jesus did and to look forward and to behold what Jesus is going to do. And the goal of this is not just so that we might behold him and worship him and give glory to him, but the goal is that in seeing him clearly, we come to see ourselves more clearly. You see, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are so united with Jesus Christ that his future is our future. And our ability to face today and all of the issues of today and all of the anxieties and all of the worries and all of the sin is based upon our ability to see Jesus clearly, to see him with a crown and to see him with a cross. Let's read that passage in Hebrews chapter two, starting in verse five. If you're there, say amen. It says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's take this in the order of the text. Let's begin by seeing Jesus with a crown. I'd encourage you to write that down. You must see Jesus with a crown. The text begins with the word for, and this is important because uh, the author is continuing his argument from chapter one. Let me just summarize it very quickly. Uh, chapter one has one point. God has spoken in a son. So God has spoken, Hebrews one, in many times, in many ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. God has one primary thing to say, and he is saying it through the works and word of Jesus Christ. If you want to know God, you look to Jesus. If you want to hear from God, you go to Jesus. What Jesus has already said and done is greater than any supernatural angelic revelation you could ever get. Jesus is the spokesman of God. 
And it tells us in verse four of chapter one that this Jesus is much superior to anything and everything. So the one word of God we have gotten is much superior to everything. And then chapter two says this, therefore, based upon the fact that God has spoken to us in Jesus Christ and Jesus is much superior to everything, you must pay close attention to Jesus. If he is much superior, he deserves much closer attention. And then a warning, last week was a warning. Because if you do not pay close attention to Jesus, you will drift away from him. The natural result of not paying close attention to Jesus day to day, moment by moment, is that you will slowly drift away. And if you continue to drift away, you will prove to not be a true disciple and you will be destroyed. So there is this strong warning, a much superior savior deserves much closer attention. So pay attention. And the whole motivation here is that we would stay close to Jesus. See, the author knows that all of us left something to come to Jesus. All of us left something. If you didn't leave something, you didn't come to Jesus because Jesus demands repentance. So we turned from something and went to Jesus. But here's the thing. The moment we come to Jesus, all the things we left are still calling us back. Every moment, that doesn't end. We may get some greater victory over it. They might lose some of the, the luster that they used to have, but we are constantly being pulled back by something. And the author here is worried that those who made a profession of faith in Jesus are gonna turn back. They're gonna stop looking to Jesus and they're gonna start looking at the things that they left, the sin, the habit, the friends, the family, the traditions, the religion, and they're gonna go backwards. And so in this entire book, he's just pleading with them and letting them know what a tragedy it would be if you left Jesus, not only because he's a superior savior, but listen, because you have with him a superior future. What's happening here is this, is, is we started with this doctrine that Jesus is better. And all of chapter one is this glory of Jesus Christ. And then that moves to a warning. You gotta pay attention to Jesus. You're gonna drift away if you don't. But what I love about this text is, is I think it's just a model for us as believers because it reminds us that everything in our life base, is based upon truth. You gotta know the truth, right? You gotta have a solid foundation of understanding of the Lord. That's why every week I start my sermon by saying, open your Bible too. Because we gotta build this on something. But that truth leads to warnings. If you don't obey this truth, there will be consequences. But I love this. But it doesn't just end with a warning. It, it moves to an encouragement. I think there's some churches that are great with the truth and some that are great with the warnings, but sometimes we miss the encouragement. The truth is Jesus is better. The warning is, is that if you don't keep watching him, you're gonna drift away. But here is an encouragement. Let me tell you why this matters so much. Let me tell you what you're gonna miss if you don't keep your eyes on Jesus. He says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. So he immediately begins to talk to us about one of those things that we can't see with the human eye. If you believe in heaven, you're believing in something that you can't see. We believe that there's a world to come. We don't believe that this is it. If we did, we would just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. This would be it. Everything in our lives would change if this was it. We would just do everything we can to get as much of this world as we can, but we don't believe that. We actually believe it's worth sacrificing a little bit of time on Sunday morning to come to church because there is a world to come. 
We sacrifice financially because there's a world to come. We do what is right and say no to sin because there's a world to come. But he says this world to come is not ruled by angels. Who is it ruled by? Well, he answers that question in verses six through eight because David quotes, or the, the, the author quotes David from Psalm 8. Now in Psalm 8, David is probably out in the field. He may be watching some sheep and it's dark and there's no lights and he looks up into the sky. And he's overwhelmed by what he sees. He looks at the heavens and the glory of all that has been made. And he's, first of all, overwhelmed with God and his bigness and his glory. But then he responds by saying this. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You, you made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So he's not only overwhelmed by the greatness of God, but he's overwhelmed by the thought that God is thinking of us. You see that word mindful there? It's an important one, circle that word. What is man, what am I that you're mindful of me? That word mindful not only means to think about someone, but it means to act on their behalf, to bless them, to do something good for them, to actively care and bless them. So if someone says to you today, hey, listen, I thought about you this week. Well, that's, that's nice. I'm glad you thought about me. If they say, I thought about you and I prayed for you, well, that's nicer. That, that kind of makes you feel even better. Wow, you, you, prayed for, you thought about me and then you prayed for me. But if they say this, I thought about you and I prayed for you and then I'm going to do something for you, that's nicer, Right? It's one thing to think about somebody. It's another thing to do something for them. And as I have been thinking about this this week and the way God works in our life, it's just reminded me that most of the time when God causes you to think about someone, it's because he wants you to do something for someone. I can't stand when somebody says, well, our thoughts are with them. I'm sure they appreciate your thoughts. They just don't do anything. Pointless. So I appreciate you thinking about something. Let me tell you something. If God brings someone to your mind, pray for them, and maybe you're supposed to do something for them. Why? Because that's the model of God. God's mindful of us. What does that mean? He thinks about us, and then in thinking about us, he acts on our behalf. God doesn't just have a, a fleeting thought in his mind about me. No, he acts on my behalf. This is a model of how we live and this word is used twice in Luke 1 to say that God saw the affliction of us and he intervened by sending a redeemer for us. This is what God does. He thinks about us and he acts on our behalf. And so David is saying, well, what, what am I? <laughs> First, that you think about me, like you know my name. You see me, you're aware of me. You're aware of all of my suffering and all of my pain and all of the difficulties of my life. You're aware of my past and all the things I feel overwhelmed by every day. You know all of that. And then you get involved. You step into it and you work on my behalf. What am I that you were mindful of me? And then it says, what, are you, what am I that you care for me? And then he quotes the truth from Genesis chapter two, verses 14, 15, and 16, where it says, you have made him, who, us, mankind, a little lower than the angels, not in worth or value, but just the fact that they're there and, and we're here, they're heavenly beings, we're earthly beings. You have crowned him, mankind, with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So let me explain this real quick. Genesis two tells us that God has created us 
to rule the world. So his original plan in creation was that we would live under the authority of God, okay? And then we, on God's behalf, would rule the world. We would have dominion over the world. It says there is nothing that was not subject to mankind. So God's plan was what we often refer to as us being vice regents, means we work on behalf of the Lord and we rule and reign over all creation. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. did. They ruled over creation. Now, it says in the next verse that we, we don't see this now. We, we haven't seen this yet. And that's because it's not like that right now. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't just disobey. They pledged allegiance to sin. Now think about this. What God had said is this. He said, I, I want you to live under my control. And as long as you live under my control, you have dominion over the whole world. You will rule over the whole world. But what Adam and Eve decided to do is this. Instead of submitting to the authority and dominion of God, they submitted themselves to the authority and dominion of sin. Because you're a slave to whatever you serve. So instead of being rulers, they're slaves. Instead of having dominion, they're under dominion. And so now mankind, crowned with glory and honor, created for this incredible purpose to rule and reign on earth, are now subject to the fear of death and sin and slavery. And we are completely enslaved, in bondage, under the dominion of sin, far from the life that God created us to live. Listen, this is not the way God intended it. This is, this is not as good as it gets. Praise God. God did not create us for this. He created us for something more than that. So look at what he says here. He says that we don't see it that way yet. At present, it says in verse 8, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Meaning that the reality right now was not the plan. Sin destroyed that. But it seems weird that he says, at present, we do not yet that seems to allude to the fact that, that someday we will. That God had a plan that was foiled because of sin. And so we're not seeing it at present, but in the future we will. He talks about there is something yet to come. Kind of spurs our imagination a little bit. Well, what, what does it mean? What, what, what's going to happen someday? What's going to happen with us? And then right as we start to wonder about this world to come, The author completely switches on us. Look at verse nine. We see him. Now we would think that him is the rest of the hymns. See, there's been a lot of hymns here, okay? What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man, you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's talking about mankind, Created to rule and reign, but then it switches hymns. We see him for a little while, lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So right as we were beginning to wonder what was happening to us and what was the future of mankind, the text just stops. It says, well, let's just for a minute take our eyes off of mankind and your future and let's see him. But... In light of all of this, is, this is saying we, we now see him also made a little lower than the angels for a time, not in value, but Jesus became a servant. He became a, a man. He lived on earth. And it says, as a result of that, he was crowned with glory and honor. We see him 
who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. So what we are to see about Jesus right now is Jesus with a crown, meaning this, is that Jesus came and did what Adam could not do. He was the second Adam. He was the better Adam. He came and lived in this world and stayed submissive to the Father and never submitted to the rule and reign of sin and death and hell. Therefore, because of that, living this perfect life, he went to the cross and died a criminal's death. And as a result of his obedience, he not only died and was buried, but rose and ascended to the right hand of the Father, where right now Jesus is ruling and reigning over all things. That's all of Hebrews 1. I'm not going to re-preach those sermons. Go listen to them. He is right now the king who has a kingdom. He is ruling and reigning, but we don't really see it yet, do we? We see it with the eye of faith. We are to see it right now. We're to picture Jesus enthroned with a crown. We don't see it fully yet, but someday we will. Someday that which we see with the eye of faith, we will see in reality. But listen, how in the world could you ever survive this life? I mean, let's be honest. Where would you have any hope or any confidence or any grace for the future if you did not see Jesus with a crown? If Jesus was not ruling and reigning, how could you wake up tomorrow? Like, why would you do anything if Jesus was not enthroned? If the one that you have chosen to give your life to was not in complete control, you have no hope in this life or the next. Like, we should pack up and go home. Like, the only thing that keeps you going day after day is seeing Jesus with a crown. Wake up in the morning, see Jesus with a crown. Be reminded that the one who saved you is not pacing, he's seated. He's got all of this under control. He says, but we see him crowned with glory and honor. But look at how he ends that verse. Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So he's saying our only hope and confidence is to see Jesus with a crown, but we must also see Jesus with a cross. Because the pathway to his crown was the cross. The way Jesus got the crown is that he went to the cross. It says, because of the suffering of death. The pathway to his crown was his cross. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let me just say something neat. There's a connection between that word mindful in verse 6 and the grace of God in verse 9. How do you know that God is mindful of you because of the grace of God displayed in Jesus Christ? He didn't just think about you. He worked on your behalf. So by his grace, he might taste death for everyone. That word taste, that word taste means that he has experienced it. He has been fully engulfed in it, meaning he took what we deserved. He took our death. He took all of the condemnation. He took all of the dominion, all of the rule and reign of Satan. And by his death on the cross, he took all of that upon himself. So we see him with a crown and we see him with a cross. And he has done that for everyone without distinction, male, female, young, old, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile. Without distinction, he has tasted death for everyone. So here's my question. 
why is it that in verse nine, the author completely switches attention to Jesus? Because he was talking about us and we were created to be crowned with glory and honor and all of these great things were going to happen. And then all of a sudden, right then he just stops and says, yeah, but we see Jesus. The reason is because everything that we were created to experience was completely lost because of sin. It was all destroyed. We're no longer whole, we're broken. That everything has been disrupted by sin. We've lost everything. We're hopeless. We have no future. And the reality is, if you look with a physical eye at the world around you, and if you look with a physical world around, about your own life, and your singleness, and your marriage, and your children, and your work, and your school, if all you see with the physical eye is the reality of the world around you, what you're going to see is that everything is messed up. And everything is broken and everything seems hopeless. And right at the moment in which we start to feel the brokenness of the world around us, it says this, but we see him. Meaning we don't just see that, we see something else. We see something the physical eye cannot see. What? We see Jesus. We see him with a crown and we see him with a cross. We see him with a cross. We see him Dying in our place, breaking the curse, taking dominion over sin, dying to take upon himself the death that we deserve and the hell that we deserve. We see ourselves as no longer slaves, not living under the dominion of sin anymore, but free to live the life we were created. So the fear has been removed. Hope has replaced it. This broken life of ours is being put back together. Why? Because of Jesus on a cross. And right now, you can not only see Jesus on the cross because the devil saw Jesus on the cross, you can see him on the cross and embrace that as the only hope that you have in this broken world. Every one of you has to come to a moment in which you see Jesus on the cross and you see him dying in your place. I know, you, I know you've seen him. You've been to enough Sunday mornings that you've seen him, but have you embraced his death in your place so that your sins are removed. The condemnation has been lifted. All that you deserved was placed upon the one who deserved none of it and you got saved. You gotta see him with a cross. Here's the good news. If you see him with a cross, then you will also see him with a crown. Meaning you've got to see that Jesus has a glorious future. No one has a better future than Jesus. Jesus has a perfect, glorious future. One day he will return and he will establish his kingdom and he will restore Eden. He will make the world like it was intended to be made. And the most amazing part is this. We who have trusted Jesus Christ will return with him. And when he establishes his kingdom on earth, we will once again rule and reign with Jesus Christ. So 2 Timothy 2 says this, this saying is trustworthy. If you have died with him, you will also live with him. If you endure, you will reign with him. See, when you see Jesus with a crown and you see the picture of Jesus's future, you also see a picture of your future. I was going to read this morning, Ephesians chapter two. I'm not going to because of time, but Write down Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 and, and read it later. Because here's the gist of Ephesians 2. What it's saying is this, is that when you come to be a believer in Jesus Christ, you are completely united with Jesus. Meaning 
His death counts as your death. His burial counts as your burial, meaning your old life is buried. His resurrection counts as your resurrection, meaning you get new life in Jesus. His ascension counts as your ascension. What Paul says is that we are to see ourselves right now ascended with Jesus and seated at the right hand of the Father with Christ, meaning our destiny is secured as Jesus is. He's got a crown. And someday we will rule and reign with him. By the eyes of faith that God has given you, you must continually see Jesus with a cross and see Jesus with a crown. And church, that's just, that's the gospel. (laughs) That he took only what we deserved and we got only what he deserved. And if somehow you miss Jesus and you get your eyes off of Jesus, you not only miss the superior savior, you miss a superior future. So the encouragement is this, keep your eyes on Jesus because he has something glorious for you. Hold on to Jesus. This is an invitation. The invitation is to to keep seeing Jesus, not once or twice, but every day. You keep your eyes focused and fixed on Jesus. You cannot live trusting your physical eyes alone. You have to see with the eyes of faith. You say, well, how does that help me today? Listen carefully and we'll close. Here's how it helps you. If you're burdened under the weight of sin, and you feel shame and condemnation and you're terrified of the consequences of your past and you're terrified that someone would know the besetting sins in your life, if you long to know true life and freedom, if you long to know the joy that we talk about and that is promised, see Jesus on the cross. See Jesus on the cross. Get on your knees this morning and, and cling to Jesus on the cross. Behold him on the cross and realize that everything you're longing for, all of the freedom, all of the forgiveness, all of the cleanliness, all of the hope, is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. Run to the cross and see Jesus there. And if somehow this morning you are suffering and it seems unrelenting, if you're burdened and discouraged, if you're weary from the pain of life, if the thought of the future is overwhelming to you, if you're bound by worry and anxiety, then see Jesus with a crown. See Jesus with a crown because this momentary, temporary light affliction pales in comparison to the glory that is yours in Jesus Christ. What God wants to do for you this morning is he wants to take you outside of the house and pray for you like Elisha prayed for the servant and say, Lord, open his eyes so he can see. And he wants you to see beyond all of your circumstances and all the things that overwhelm you and all the things that discourage you, there is a greater reality that can only be seen with the eye of faith. And church, it is yours. So you can rest and you can be assured and you can be confident as the vision of Jesus Christ with a crown and with a cross becomes a reality in your life. But whatever you do, just keep seeing Jesus. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.